Good morning. We are back in 1 Peter today, and I am really excited. We're starting chapter 4. We're going to see some amazing things in chapter 4. going to go on through chapter 5 and be done probably near Easter. And I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter 4, and if you're able, please stand with me as I read God's Word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is God's word. Lord God, open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Peter wrote this letter around 62 AD to a scattered group of confused, discouraged, and persecuted Christians who would suffer even more harshly under Nero's flame in the near future. They were going to suffer for their faith in Christ more than they already were suffering for their faith in Christ. And he is exhorting these elect exiles to stand firm in Christ, to trust the Lord, to obey Him, to fix their hope on God's promise of eternal life because they have a a living hope, a hope that is certain and sure and steadfast and unchanging, a hope that nothing can ruin, nothing can crush, no persecution no disappointment, no tragedy. They have this eternal hope anchored in the faithfulness of God and the lordship of Christ. This is the hope that believers have today that we, as we live in confusing times, changing times, challenging times, where persecution of Christians is increasing, we have this living hope. Peter has been telling them, and he keeps telling them how they can make it in this life in view of the one to come. He has told them that their faith has been tested by fire. He will tell them that their faith is going to be tested even more by fire, that there will be a fiery ordeal coming upon them. 
He has told them that all flesh is like grass. It withers away. It doesn't last. And the glory of man is like the flower of the grass. But he has also told them that the word of God is eternal. That the gospel is eternal. And we live our lives here today and we are wondering. We are wondering how we will deal with the suffering. Either the suffering that we're going through now or suffering that might happen in the future. We also are wondering how can we stop sinning so much? We, we know that we have this constant battle with sin. We ask the big questions, how are we to live our life? Are we really to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? Are we to live in doubt and discouragement and downcast? Peter has been and continues to give what his readers back then needed and what we need today, an eternal perspective on life lived here on earth. Verse 1 says that Christ suffered in the flesh. Therefore, we are to arm ourselves. Arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. With what? With a way of thinking that lines up with the way Christ thought about suffering and obedience. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, a resolve to to think like Jesus did, a purpose like Jesus had. You see, God wants us to arm ourselves with the mindset of Christ so that even in suffering, we would live for Christ, that even in suffering, we would stand firm in Christ and please God. Arm yourselves is a military term. It pictures a soldier taking up his weapons for a fight. A soldier taking up weapons for battle. It's related to Ephesians 6.11 where it says take up the full armor of God. It's a related word. Put on your armor. You're to arm yourself with the ultimate weapon. The same, the Greek word is anoia, the same mind, idea, principle, thought that Jesus had how do you stand strong when righteousness brings suffering how do you arm yourself with Christ's purpose this passage reveals four commitments in suffering that serve as motivation for godly living verse 1 begins since therefore it's one of the drawbacks of the Bible being split up into chapters and verses, added much later so that we can find things in the Bible. But beginning a chapter with the word therefore can be confusing. It is not a new string of thought. It is built on everything Peter has said in this letter so far and what he just said. It is firmly linked to what came before. Peter has been telling them how amazing their new life in Christ is. How God has transformed their lives due to his good pleasure. How they loved God and believed in him even though they couldn't see him. And how they could stand firm when suffering unjustly. 
and how they could live as husbands and wives and employees and citizens. And he's been coming to this huge conclusion, this pinnacle at the end of chapter 3. Namely in verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Peter is saying, arm yourselves with a way of thinking based on what you know and have learned about how God deals with people. Arm yourselves with a way of thinking about suffering that pleases God. It will motivate you to godliness. So verse 1, Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking because whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Wouldn't it be awesome to cease from sin? Wouldn't it be great to go one day without sin? Who has ceased from sin here? It says that Christ has suffered in the flesh. It's the same idea as in chapter 3, verse 18. It's this suffering that describes a definite point in time, a definite event, not an ongoing process, describing the once-for-all suffering of Christ on the cross where he suffered for our sin. Verse 18 in chapter 3 says he was put to death in the flesh. It refers to the same thing that chapter 4 verse 1 says. Christ suffered in the flesh. Basically, Christ died for us. Christ's death on the cross. There was triumph in that death. Therefore, he has ceased from sin. How can it be said that the sinless, eternal Son of God ceased from sin? Because it means this, ceased from sin equals is done with sin. A permanent condition determined by a past event, a new situation through one act of suffering resulting in a situation where sin was stopped. Sin was finished. Now we're sitting here today, all of us struggling with sin in our life, and we say, how could it be said that sin was stopped? That it was finished? When Christ suffered on the cross, sin was done away with. He was finished with it. He dealt decisively with it. There was a decisive death of sin. You could say that Jesus killed sin at the cross. Now what's amazing is that Peter applies it to us. When I say us, I mean believers in the Lord Jesus. So if you're not a believer, it's not applied to you. But if you're a believer in Jesus, you trusting in his work on the cross, it's being applied now to you. If you have the mindset of Christ, if you're armed with that, what will you be willing to do? What will your commitment level be? This is the question. Verse 1 shows us this first commitment. Again, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh, died, has ceased from sin. The idea is that you will be eagerly willing to suffer and die 
for your faith in Christ. You may not have thought of that before. It might be a foreign thought. You say, I live in America. Huh? Christians aren't being shot and killed for being believers right now, so maybe this doesn't apply to us. It absolutely applies to us. A willingness to die because you know death produces ultimate greatest victory. Paul says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And then he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter would have that very opportunity in facing martyrdom. He was faithful unto death. The idea here, here is if, if they kill you for your faith, you cease from sin. The worst they can do to you is kill you, and if they kill you, the battle is over. Your battle with sin will be over. This is what a lot of Peter's readers would be facing soon under Nero's flame. Death for their faith in Christ, and once that happened, the battle is over. I'm sure there were people that were listening and hearing that died by attrition, died of old age, died of some sickness, died of something else besides being persecuted for their faith in Christ. But the idea is you die, your battle with sin is over. You're ceasing from sin. There is victory. The devastation that sin has brought over your life is over. You are with Jesus forever. Your battle with sin is over, and that Romans 6 and Romans 7 daily battle has now morphed into Romans 8 victory. We have this desire as believers to please God. And at the very same time, we have this battle going on with our flesh to please our sin nature. But you die for your life in Christ. You die physically. You die for your faith or you die as a believer, it's instantly over. That battle is over. You're free. You're fully free. You've entered into this eternal condition of holy perfection, free from all of sin's influences and damning effects. This high point in chapter 3 and verse 18, it shows us that suffering can be victorious. Jesus was victorious through suffering, that Christ in unjust suffering triumphed, that God brought about the greatest good out of the worst sin, that God brought about the greatest good out of the greatest suffering, the cross, hatred, rejection of Christ, and he triumphed over sin and death and the devil and wrath, and God has given him supremacy over all. This is what you see at the end of chapter 3. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. All spiritual powers subject to him. All under him. And Peter is saying, arm yourself with the same realization, the same principle, the same idea that was manifested in Christ's suffering. 
the idea that even in death, I can triumph. And I will triumph because God is with me. Jesus has secured full victory over sin and death. So the first thing we would see in terms of having the mindset of Christ is the willingness to die for your faith in Christ. Maybe not on a cross like Jesus did, but to die for Christ, to die for your faith. What some of Peter's readers were facing and would face. I like what Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He says, I do not count my life as dear to myself. It's not all about me, he says. I will go so far as to say, if you are not willing to freely lose your life for Christ's sake, you will not be willing to fully live your life for Christ's sake. You may be telling yourself that you're living all for Jesus, but if you are not willing to give your life for him, then you're fooling yourself. It's one thing to say it, and it's another thing to live it. I'm looking around right now, and I have living proof in front of me that myself and you, all of us, have never died for our faith in Christ. You're here. You're alive. We say it, but, you know, when I say it, I, I, it feels like I don't even know what I'm talking about because I haven't gone through that. But I know that we must resolve to be willing to die for Christ. Because the Holy Spirit says through Peter, since Christ suffered in the flesh, died for us, we are to arm ourselves with the same purpose. Martyrs were killed. Martyrs are killed. Then and now, people willing to lose their life for Jesus, that is the basic Christian life commitment. That's point A, a Christian commitment. When you go armed in with the goal of ultimately being delivered from sin, and that is accomplished through physical death, then the terrifying threat of death in your life is gone. Death becomes precious Paul says for to me to live is Christ and to die gain gain so if you find yourself burning at the stake one day or before a firing squad for your faith in Christ or getting your, hot, your head chopped off for Jesus say thank you Say thank you to your tormentors. Say thank you. The battle's over. Thank you. Freedom in Christ. I'm done with sin. You take your dying breath. If you're a believer, say sin's done. This is the spiritual call to arms. That's what it is. Peter is talking about wartime conditions and putting on armor and being ready and having a ready defense. Be willing to die for Christ. Now you could recant. You could deny that you know Jesus at all. Just like Peter did one day. 
But by this time when he wrote this, his will was fixed. He was ready to die for Christ. He willingly accepted death for Christ's sake. So we must voluntarily accept the possibility of dying for our faith in Christ. Have you ever thought about this? It's easy to look at a passage of scripture like Matthew 10, where Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, and think it's all about being more spiritually committed to Christ. A, A deeper level of spiritual dedication. And, and it is that aspect, obviously, of death to self, where you're not dying a physical death, but you are dying to your own desires, repudiating your own sinful nature. But there is also the idea of being willing to lay down your life for Christ. When, when Jesus' hearers heard these words, that's what they thought. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I die daily. That doesn't mean he was dying a physical death daily. It means that every day he was willing to die for Christ and he was laying down his life for the cause of Christ. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, we are persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always delivered over to death always carrying in the body the dying of Jesus. He was ready for it. Ready. If you have the mindset of Christ and you're armed with that, you will be willing to die for your faith in Christ. That's the first commitment of Christian discipleship. And you won't just be willing to die, but you'll also be motivated to do things during your life on earth that are very pleasing to God. It says, whoever has suffered in the flesh, whoever has died, has ceased from sin. Some people think that means that you could actually stop sinning for the rest of your life. They're delusional. But wouldn't it be awesome? Wouldn't it be awesome? Press pause for a moment. Wouldn't you love to go one day sinless? Wouldn't you love to go one day without without sin? Oh, to be the perfect pastor of perfect people. I'm a sinful man shepherding a group of sinful people. You know how tough it is? To be a sinful leader of sinful people is tough on you and it's tough on me. An imperfect leader of imperfect people. It's really tough. Because we are tainted every day by sin. We have not ceased from sin yet. The truth is, believers hate sin. Believers desire to be free from sin. Believers long to be freed from sin. Have you ever, I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've found yourself longing and crying out to God 
with Paul and saying, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? I'm sure you've experienced that many times. You long to be delivered from sin. Long to be free from its bondage. And if so, you will not just be willing to die for your faith in Christ, but you will have another commitment. You will arm yourself with a commitment to abandon sin. Abandon the sinking ship of sin. You will earnestly and honestly reject and shun sin. That's the second commitment. Verse 2. He says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion. We ask this question, how can we avoid sinning? We can't, and we can. What's required to stay away from sin? It's the major effort of every true believer who wants to live for the glory of God. The indwelling Holy Spirit is is working in believers so that we would desire to love God and avoid sin. Avoiding sin is one of the ways you honor God. It's one of the ways you love God. You can't honor God and be sinning at the same time. So what makes you want to arm yourself to think like this, to to abandon sin? I think the first thing is you just think about what sin did to Jesus. Think about what sin did to Jesus. It killed Jesus. So you should hate sin. Why would you want to celebrate what sent Jesus to the cross? Romans 8, it says that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. He subjected himself to wicked men and he condemned sin in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he was made sin for us. 1 Peter 2.24 says he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. We might die to sin, live to righteousness. What should make you want to shun sin? Remember what it did to Jesus. And then think about what it's done to you and your life and your family and everyone you've ever met. It causes you to battle all your whole life until death. It causes bondage and warfare it keeps you from living a perfect holy christ-like life as peter says it wages war against your soul that's what sin does to you we need to arm ourselves with a commitment to abandon sin we're to arm ourselves with a mindset that decisively focuses on our new life in christ a decisive death to sin. We are literally to kill sin. To mortify the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. When my sisters and I were younger, if we did something wrong in public, I remember my mom saying a few times, I was mortified. My mom's here in third hour. 
So she's probably mortified right now. I didn't know what she meant at the time. I, I, I thought she meant you're in big trouble. You know, like, but really it's, you know, I could have died. You embarrassed me so much in public. I was mortified. We are to mortify the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. Romans 6 tells us, put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Peter has already told us, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from fleshly lusts. They wage war against your soul. Going towards something that wants to kill you. Verse 2 says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, the lusts of men. And there we have that word again that we saw before, epithumia. It's active individual desire that results from the diseased sinful condition of the soul. It's a desire for evil, not good. Verse 3 tells us that the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. That's saying it's been more than adequate time for you to live like that. And it's not contrasting Gentiles with Jews, but contrasting unbelievers with believers. The time that has passed is much more than adequate for doing what unbelievers want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. What makes you want to arm yourself to think like, like this to kill sin? Just remember what sin has done to the world. Look at verse 3. The devastation. The graphic devastation that grieves God's heart. Sensuality. That's unrestrained, no limits, debauchery. We live in a pornographic culture and we're not hiding our eyes. Passions, lusts, that's evil desire that drives you to sinful indulgence. Drunkenness, literally wine bubbling up, that's habitual drunkenness. Orgies, wild carousing. In those days there would be religious cults where they would go through the streets wildly staggering as a group. Drinking parties, those are parties specifically with the purpose to become intoxicated. And lawless idolatry, that's abominable idolatries. Worship of idols. Worship of the Greek gods like Dionysius and like Bacchus, the god of wine in those days. The gospel counteracts what sin destroys. You think about what sin has done to the world. The devastation that is graphic, that grieves God's heart. If you're in that camp today where you say the, the list that Peter gave in verse 3, that describes me more than being a person who is born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, then you need to Believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Put your trust in his finished work on the cross. 
when he dealt a decisive blow to sin. Repent of your sins, turn from your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You will be rescued from sin's penalty and sin's power, but not its presence yet. That's why we need to kill our sin. The big word is mortification, which won't make you perfect, and it's more than behavior modification. Colossians 3 says, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and in these you too once walked when you were living in them. This is what Peter's saying. The time past is sufficient for you to have done all that. It's not your place anymore. It's not your life anymore. You've been transformed by God in Christ. Galatians 5 says those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. How do you do that? How do you kill sin? Let me give you let me give you seven things that I think will help you in your life. Number one, you want to kill sin? You want to abandon sin? And number one, surrender to God. Surrender to God. Obediently yield to Him. Romans 6 tells us our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We're not slaves to sin anymore. We shouldn't be slaves to sin anymore. Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 5.1, don't, don't return to a yoke of slavery that leads to bondage again. Surrender to God. The, the idea is be a slave to God. Be a slave to righteousness. So surrender to God. Number two, cling to truth and use the sword of the Spirit. Ephesians 6 tells us you should take up the full armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done this, to stand firm. It says to, to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So you take up the Word of God, you, you know what it says, you read it a lot, you, you get it, and, and then you do what it says by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how you kill sin. Number three, you pray for strength. Romans 7 Paul's experience is, is ours as well. He says, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You've been through that? A lot. He says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Oh, we know what he's talking about. Don't we? Every day of our life. He says, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? The answer to that prayer is the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's your victory. Pray for strength. Surrender to God, cling to truth, and use the sword of the Spirit and pray for strength. And number four, decide before you're tempted what you're going to do. Plan good, not evil. 
love what is good, choose holiness before the fact. Romans 6 says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you might obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Don't plan that out. Present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Decide before you're tempted to do good, not evil. And number five, be very wary and suspicious of sin because it's very deceptive. That's its nature. It's a lie. God isn't trying to ruin your life. God isn't trying to ruin your fun. God isn't trying to ruin your joy. God wants to rescue you from a tyrant that wants to kill you. And God is so good. He is so patient. He is so kind with us. He restores what sin destroys. That's what he does. He gently breaks us. He doesn't crush us because Jesus was crushed for our sin. Be wary and suspicious of sin. And number six, depend on the Spirit. Depend on the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 12 says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. By the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. That is a cry of dependence. That is a cry of, oh Lord, I need you. Depend on the Spirit if you want to kill sin. And number seven, really practical thing, lean on wise, godly friends. Have people in your life that point you to righteousness, not to sin. You're not going to be sinless this side of heaven, but you should be getting progressively more sanctified, holy in Christ, closer to the Lord, sinning less. You won't be sinless, but you will sin less. You should surrender to God. You want to kill your sin? Cling to truth and use the sword. Pray for strength. Decide before tempted. Be wary and suspicious of sin. Depend on the Spirit and lean on wise, godly friends. How can we celebrate what sent Jesus to the cross? Sin has messed us up so badly that we will not be delivered from it until we're dead. And the more you see sin's effects on Christians, the more you hate it, and the more you'll have a healthy fear of it. John Owen put it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. On December 22nd, 2006, a Siberian tiger named Tatiana attacked her keeper at the San Francisco Zoo. Vikram Chari and his six-year-old son witnessed the bloody assault. Vikram said this, the tiger ate her hand. It slowly proceeded to eat the rest of her arm. You see, creatures we become accustomed to can turn on us at any moment. 
an annual animal behaviorist said, if you're not afraid of it, it, it will hurt you. <laughs> you can't get the wild out of a cat because he's in a cage. Consider your favorite sin. Your pet. Your most cherished vice. It's feeding like a parasite on your lifeblood. It wreaks havoc in your life. Its elbows are on the table and it's chowing down. Its appetite is ravenous and it cannot be tamed. It must be destroyed. We think we can tame sin. Like a tiger, sin turns on us when we are off our guard. And we think we have it under control, that we can coexist. One writer said, sin will never be domesticated. It is a wolf, not dog. Piranha, not goldfish. Evil is untamable. It is our enemy opposed to us in every way. At every moment, sin is wired to destroy. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Next week, we're going to look at the next two commitments. I think these two are sufficient for today. You see, there is only one object of our affections worth the loss of all things. And it's not sin. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Sin is not worth the loss of all things. Only Jesus is. How should a Christian view life? How can a Christian make it in this life from here to the one to come? Arm yourselves with the attitude, the mind of Christ. Resolve to accept death and reject sin. Lord God, thank you that these decisive declarations can be ours in Christ by your spirit and through your word. That we can say in faith, I am willing to die for Christ. Knowing that death for Christ is a possibility and that physical death is an eventuality. We must be willing to die for our faith. Lord God, make us willing. And Lord God, we want to declare that we are committed to abandoning sin because it destroys and we need to reject it. Lord God, be honored in our hearts and in our lives, in our homes, and everywhere you send us. In Christ's name, amen.